Well, good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out, go ahead and open them up to the book of Mark. We'll be starting our study this morning from there in just a moment. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are always thankful to have you in our midst. Um, and it is just always good for all of us to be gathered here uh, in, in the presence of God, to sing praises to Him, to worship Him as our King, to open our hearts to Him and to be filled by, by His love and His mercy. And in, we do that through coming through a better understanding of Him through the knowledge of His Word. And I hope that this morning I can help you in some way to grow a little bit in a better knowledge of Him through His Word as we look at the, the life of Christ, what we've been seeing uh, over the past couple of, of months is the life of Christ as, as recorded by, by Mark. Uh, and remembering that Mark, um, he's got a mission. And that mission is to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the, the King come with power. Uh, and he doesn't really beat around the bush when it comes to that. He's got a message. One of his favorite words is to say immediately or straightway. He has got a lot to say and a little time uh, and and I, I can understand that, so I'm going to try to get into this lesson and, and, and try to get a lot of information out and not keep you here all afternoon long. So in Mark chapter 14, we see a picture of Jesus that has been repeated throughout Mark's gospel, uh, and that is that Jesus is a human being. Jesus is a, a child of Israel. He is a Jew, and He is devout in His service to the Lord. We've seen him during Sabbaths. We've seen him with temple visits, even traditional celebrations that maybe weren't commanded by God. In John chapter 10, we have a picture of Jesus going to this feast of dedication, later becomes known as the festival of lights. This is not something that was required of him, but yet he, he attends this. Over and over again, we see Jesus showing that the things of God things that pertain to Him, things that He has commanded, these things get my attention. These things are important to me, and that is no more better seen than during the Passover. The Passover is something that He had observed many times His entire life. But today we see Him observe it in a new way. Now earlier in chapter 14, what we see is people making preparations. You have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, preparing to kill Jesus. They want to do something about this man, but we can't do it on Passover. You have Judas preparing to betray him. You have this, this unnamed woman preparing him for his burial, anointing him with oil. But in all this, we see Jesus making preparations as well. He is making preparations for this very important observance of the Passover. But also to institute it in a new way. A new way to remember what God has done for those who belong to Him. And to see that, we have to first have a good understanding of what exactly is the Passover. What is Jesus getting ready to partake in? And we need to see the significance of it. So, I want to begin by asking you to picture, just, just picture in your mind for a minute. Go back to the days of, of Israel and Egypt and see Israel in your mind's eye. Here is this this people, and it's not the mighty, great nation of Israel. It is a slave race. It is a group of slaves that are crying out to their God because there is no other hope for them. There is nothing they can do to get out of this oppression. There is nothing they can do to save themselves from the trouble that they are in. There is nothing in their power that can help them. 
And so they cry out to their God and He hears them and He, he calls them out of Egypt. But He doesn't just call them out of Egypt. He calls them home. He says, you're coming out of this place where you are, are enslaved and you're coming to the home that I promised your father Abraham. And He sends them a servant. A man by the name of Moses. And this man confronts the, the evil oppressor that is holding them hostage. He goes to him and with many signs and wonders says, let God's people go. Let them be free. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses to do so. And so God acts in a miraculous way, sending many of these disastrous plagues on Egypt. All of which culminate, or they chip away at the power, they chip away at the control that Egypt has, but they culminate in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son in all the land, in every household, except for those that had been covered, that had the doorpost, the, the lintel and post covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Something which God had forewarned the Israelites about. These houses would be spared this judgment. So having thought about all that, I want us to just flip back over for a moment and look at Exodus chapter 12. You can hold yourself here in Mark. We're going to come right back to it. But for just a moment, I want us to read in Exodus chapter 12 what God is saying to the Israelites during this time. In verse 11, He says, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you, so shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. We need to see what God is saying here. This is more important than just, you know, I'm setting something up that you all pay attention. You're going to do it again next year. It's more important than that. We need to see what he's saying is it's not the people. The people are not the deciding factor as to who God will destroy or not destroy. It has nothing to do with the people. It has everything to do with the blood. That's the significance of the Passover. The feast was to commemorate what God did, not because Israel earned it, not because Israel was some mighty, righteous nation, because God saw the blood on the door. God saw the blood and He passed over. That's what makes this feast so important. Because it repeatedly draws our minds to freedom. It drew their minds to freedom from slavery. In the days of Jesus, you find a people that are still keeping this memorial. They're still looking back to what God has done. And this is a people who are now controlled by Rome. This is the people who aren't free anymore. They're under the control of another nation. And so they keep the Passover and it's a memorial to when God freed us. It's a memorial to what God has done for them and who He has done it for. But also in the back of their mind, they have the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 saying, one day a prophet is coming like Moses. 
Like the servant who addressed the oppressive force in their lives that freed them, brought about this freedom from Egypt. One day a prophet is coming like Moses. And in their minds that that means is one day someone is coming to draw me back out of slavery. To bring us back into our kingdom. To bring us back into power and into control. And what has Jesus just done? A few days earlier, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The, 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 those with Him gathering around, laying down the palm leaves and throwing down things as He comes in. The King is coming into His town. And they couldn't have been shouting. If they were shouting, long live the King, it wouldn't have been more clear as to what this was symbolizing. The King has come into Jerusalem. And this is the very reason the Pharisees say, He can't be the guy. We have to kill Him. We have to do something about this guy because, yes, we're waiting on the Messiah, but that can't be him. But we can't do that on Passover because Passover looks back to this very moment. Passover looks back to the servant that shows up and says, you all are coming out of this. And here we have this guy who claims to be a servant of God, the very son of God, saying, I'm the king, I'm here. We can't kill him on the Passover. This is a politically and emotionally charged day. And that's the backdrop to Jesus observing this Passover. They're waiting for someone to come and save them. And now you have Jesus remembering this. Remembering what all of this means with His disciples. But He's about to change it forever. So we begin in verse 22. And there we read, As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. So as they ate, what are they doing? They're remembering Egypt. They're remembering deliverance from the power of, 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 of Egypt, or the power of the Pharaoh from slavery. They're remembering how they were delivered out of that. And during that, Jesus refocuses their eyes. He changes the focus from Egypt and says, let me give you a new symbol. This bread represents my body. So their eyes have been looking back to Egypt. He says, now wait a minute. As you take of it this time, I want you to bring it right here and look at me. This bread represents my body. And for just a moment, picture that as he takes the bread and he blesses, or if you're, you're reading from the NIV this morning, you hear what the NIV says, he gives thanks for it. And then he breaks it. And he passes it out to his apostles. For one, I want to I say that the NIV in Mark 22 does a much better job of translating this passage. The NIV does a much better job of getting to the meaning of what's happening here. Because the word bless that so many of our translations use, the New King James Version use, it doesn't make it a bad translation, but that word can be a little unclear sometimes. Sometimes blessed means consecrated, set apart. Things have been blessed for the purpose of God and they were used for the purpose of God and nothing else. Sometimes blessed means praiseworthy. Whenever someone blesses God, they are praising God. And sometimes blessed means happy. Psalms chapter 1, blessed is he who walks with the Lord. What is Jesus saying here? Well, the very next verse, in verse 23, uh, 23 gives us a good idea after he took the cup and then he given thanks. But also, I want you to think about what Paul said he was saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 23, Paul says, This is what Jesus told me. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is incredibly important to this story. Because what it brings us to a point is you have a, a group of disciples that are gathered together with Jesus and they are giving thanks for what God has done. They are giving thanks for God delivering them, their ancestors, out of Egypt. That is where their heart is. They have a thankful heart that looks back to that. And it's at that time Jesus says, wait a minute. Now I want you to connect this to me because I'm about to become the Passover lamb. Me. I'm going to become the way that you receive salvation. From this point forward, as you eat this bread, you are going to remember and you are going to give thanks for my sacrifice because He gave Himself completely for them. In fact, what we see is that in His death, in the death of Christ, ultimately, you have the fulfillment of hope, the fulfillment of freedom, all of which began in the Passover, began in the Exodus. You have a nation that starts to see this is what hope looks like, this is what freedom looks like, and Jesus is saying, I'm bringing that to completion. I'm bringing that to fulfillment here, and His death sets us free from sin. His death confronts the oppressive force in our lives that, that controls us, death, Satan. Jesus' death confronted that and defeated it, overpowered Him. And what Jesus is saying then, as they think back to the Passover, He's saying this bread represents a gift. A gift of Myself given for you. And we need to remember that. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to remember this represents the gift of Jesus' life as our Passover Lamb to deliver us, to free us. He is the bread of life. He came down from heaven and He gave Himself for you and for me. But then He continues in verse 23 and 24. He says, Then He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And He says to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is shed for many. And he continues this Passover meal, and he continues to do the same thing. He takes the cup, the fruit of the vine, and again he's refocusing the meaning away from the Egyptian Passover with this phrase, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Now some of your translations are going to leave out new, and some of your translations are going to place in another word for shed. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Boy, what he's doing here is he's bringing up the idea of covenants and blood, and that is not something new in Scripture. Jesus didn't pull this out of his back as he's sitting here and go, this would, this would be a good time to introduce this really new thought that nobody has heard of before. No, God has been leading us to this point through the entire Bible. The entire Bible has been bringing us to understand what Jesus is about to say right here. Throughout Scripture... We find that blood represents life. You go back to Genesis chapter 9. Back in Genesis, you go back to Genesis and look at the story of Cain and Abel. You see that, that the life of Abel, after it's taken, God comes and He says, His blood 
is crying out to me. But Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, after the Noah and the ark, after the ark has come to rest, they've come out, and God has given these instructions to Noah. And in verse 4, He says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Blood is connected to life over and over and over again in Scripture. And you know what else is connected to blood? Covenants. Promises, agreements, these things are all connected in Scripture and in the ancient world. This isn't just something that's, that's true in the Bible. It's true throughout the ancient society that when you made this covenant relationship, they called it a, a suzerainty relationship between one nation, a vassal nation, and a kingdom. The greater kingdom would say, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be a part of me. You have my protection. You have my, my support. If... You keep true to the agreement that we're setting. And then they would make a sacrifice to show this costs something. Blood was always tied to covenants. There is always the death of an animal in every covenant in the Scripture. Or among, in actuality, many animals. There is lots of blood being shed in these covenants. And it's evident in making a covenant in the Bible to be ratified. Blood has to exist. So when Jesus says, this is my blood which is shed, or maybe more, more likely should be, is poured out. My blood which is poured out for many. What he's doing is he's drawing up a picture saying, there is a covenant being made and I'm going to be the slain animal. I'm going to be the cost that is paid to make this covenant between God and man effective. It's going to be me. And I mentioned that I think translations that put poured out are more effective because what they do is they point our minds back to, to prophecy specifically about this point. In, uh, in Isaiah 53, 12, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah. He says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is talking about what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is pointing back to it and saying, I am that guy that Isaiah was talking about. I am going to be the, the slain lamb whose blood ratifies this agreement between God and man. He is giving his life to make effective a new, or maybe better yet put, a fulfilled covenant through which we enjoy forgiveness, through which we enjoy freedom from sins, but once again, we need to return to the Scriptures and find the way that that should affect us. What did covenants do for people in the Old Testament? What did they do for the Israelites in light of the covenant made with them through the Passover? Looking back to Exodus 24, listen to what happens here. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. I want you to see that picture there. The people being covered in the blood of the covenant and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. The words of the covenant, the words of the people that say, We are going to be faithful to this. We are going to obey this. And what that means is entering into a covenant requires commitment. Commitment to that covenant. God has shown throughout history, I will be 100% faithful to my covenants. 
That's his track record, 100%. Our track record is, is substantially worse. Something around the line of 0% has man stood 100% faithful to his covenants. We have failed. Romans 3 brings, us, brings that point up to us so, so vividly, saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you have a picture of us that over and over again say, we're going to be faithful to the covenant and fall short of that. You have a picture of a God who never fails to be faithful to His covenant. And now, to me, such an awe-inspiring picture here. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'll do it again. But this time I won't require the blood of something from you. I'll take my own blood. I'll be the blood offering for this covenant. For a people that have shown over and over again that they can't be trusted to be faithful, I'll still make that sacrifice for them. The great love and mercy of God is in full display in the very words of Christ during this Passover meal. And so I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that each and every time that the Lord's Supper is observed, each and every time that we take the opportunity to, to go in memorial to what Christ has done, remember who God is. Remember what He has done. We should contemplate on our love for Jesus. We should contemplate on our commitment to His covenant. And we should contemplate our faithfulness to His kingdom. And I bring that up because what He says next in verse 25. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This right here, in all of this picture, is probably to me the most amazing part of this picture. Jesus has just told them, essentially, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. I'm going to become the Passover lamb that must die so his blood can be spread to save the people. And I'm no longer going to partake of this Passover with you. That's a very sad, somber notion. But he says, until. And that until is a very powerful word in this passage. I'm going to die and I'm not going to be able to take this again with you until I do take it again with you. How sad that message must have sounded. Until you hear the remainder. This is not going to be my end. I want you to think back to Isaiah 53. That's exactly what he's talking about when he says it was the Lord's will to curse him or crush him and cause him to suffer and through the Lord make His life an offering for sin. He will see His offspring and prolong His days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying this guy that I've been telling you about, he's going to die for the sins of the world, but that's not going to be the end of his life. He's going to see his children. He's going to have a long life. The will of the Lord is going to prosper in him and through him. And this is what Jesus is referencing back. I'm going to die. He will die for the sins of the world, but it won't be His end. He lives. And today, He lives. 
And the blood of the covenant reminds us that we have forgiveness and we have commitment, but we have a living Christ. And He died and He rose back to life to instill a kingdom that He's bringing us into. That He's inviting us to join Him with and partake of this communion, this joining together with Him. And then finally, we're left with this picture. Jesus and His disciples strolling off to, Mount, to the Mount of Olives, singing hymns. Now this is incredibly uh, typical of what Jews would do during the Passover. In fact, there was a section of the Psalms that they most often would sing called the Hallel Psalms. They're found in, in Psalms 113 through 118. But of these five, six Psalms that were so common, there was a few that were focused on. There was a few that tended uh, to, to get a lot more attention according to Jewish tradition. Uh, and I want to share some of the thoughts from these with you. When we think about these Hallel Psalms, I want you to think about Psalm 115, 116, and 118. Now, I'm going to read these to you. What I want you to do, whether it be close your eyes, what have you, just think back to His disciples from what they've just experienced, what they've just went through, and think back to just a few minutes ago as we partook the Lord's Supper. And what do these words mean to you today? Psalm 115, verses 1 through 11. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name give glory because of Your mercy, because of Your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses they have but they do not smell. They have hands but they do not handle. Feet they have but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throats. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 116 in verse 1 says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore You, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And one final one, Psalm 118. Verses 1 through 4 say, he give, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. In verse 21, I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we humble our hearts and we go back to those events and we enter into a communion with our Lord, we remember that we are making an exciting and we are making a joyful proclamation. We are in covenant relationships. That's what we are shouting to one another and to God. We are in covenant relationships with God. And when we call on His name, it's to our salvation. And when we sacrifice to our Lord, it is with thanksgiving and fear. Fear is far from us. Because the Lord doesn't see us. He sees the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the perfect Lamb of God. And He passes over. You have been given an opportunity through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have been given an opportunity to be brought out of slavery and into His mighty kingdom. The kingdom of the Son of His love. And you have been given the opportunity to go to the promised land. Not just to come out, to come home. The opportunity is yours. The opportunity is given to all. But it won't be received by all. It will only be received by those who trust in God and enter into the covenant of Christ's blood. The last passage I want to leave you with is in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about what Christ has done for us. Romans 5, he's talking about everything that we've talked about here this morning. But in Romans 6, he reminds those people who had been baptized into Christ, do you know what that did to you? When you were baptized into Him, you were baptized into His death where His blood was shed. It is there in baptism that we come into contact with the precious blood of Christ. He says it is also there that you died. And the old man of sin you left in that watery grave. And you were raised just like Christ was raised by the power, the glory of God. You're raised to a new life where you walk in the glory of God. So today, are you willing to enter into a covenant with God based on obedience, based on trust, based on faith, not because of who you are, because of who He is, and because of what He has done for those who would belong to Him. If you are willing to do so, I encourage you, come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.